I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Andy Dunn, co-founder of Bonobos, an e-commerce company that sells men's clothing. Bonobos started off with the goal of selling better-fitting pants for men in 2007 and expanded to include all types of men's apparel. Bonobos also has guide shops, which are actual stores where customers may try on clothing before they are ordered and delivered to their home. In 2014, Bonobos launched a women's brand called Air and a line of golf clothing called Made. Andy started Bonobos with his Stanford Business School classmate Brian Spaley in 2007. Prior to business school, Andy worked as a consultant for Bain & Company, working on consumer apparel catalog companies like Land's End. Andy attended college at Northwestern and grew up in Chicago. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. What's the problem with men's pants? It's actually a pretty simple issue, which is it's an issue of fit. So the American cut trends toward boxy, and we observed this issue that we sort of jokingly started referring to as KDB, which is an acronym for khaki diaper butt. And you kind of see your average guy kind of walking down the street with these ill-fitting khakis, and that's sort of the typical American cut. That's at one end of the spectrum. At the other end of the spectrum, you have the European cut, which can look very flattering, but it's probably best observed when a guy is standing up because once he sits down, it's really, really tight. Mm-hmm. And if you've worn these great fitting, really slim fitting, you know, typical European cut pants, they can be really uncomfortable <laughs> when you're seated. So were you a khaki diaper butt guy or were you a tight pant <laughs> guy growing well, up? I was a default to denim guy. And I think one of the interesting things that happened in the 90s is we had this massive proliferation of men's jeans that cost over $100. And I remember growing up, you know, that would have been a crazy idea. And I remember going with my dad probably to the Oak Brook Mall near where I grew up in Westchester, Illinois, and trying to convince him to buy my first pair of seven jeans. And, you know, it's over $100. And my dad's like, what are you talking about? Mm. And so we had this amazing explosion in denim in the 90s, this premium denim category that produced a lot of great brands. That improvement in fit, we haven't actually seen happen on the other side of the aisle, khaki pants, wool pants. So that's those were the areas that we focused on when we launched Bonobos. You also had the birth of the metrosexual in a way, where maybe men always cared about what, what they wear, but it was just heightened. That's right. There's been a broad-based trend toward men caring more about the fit of their clothes. Traditionally, it's been a feminine sensibility, or it's been a gay sensibility. And so in some regards, that is now changing for all men, where it's no longer okay to not care about how your clothes fit. Brian Spaley was your classmate at Stanford Business School, and he's the one who came up with this um, this design of a, of a curved waist so that the back of the pants wouldn't be too saggy. What does the curved waist do? So it's a curved waistband. And when you the best way to think about it is that when you buy a belt, like let's say you buy a leather belt, it comes straight. And then as you wear it, it starts to develop a little bit of a sickle shape. I don't know if you've ever noticed, and if you hang your belts up in your closet as I do, you can start to see this curvature. And what that does is it basically enables the pant to come up and around the seat. Said differently, it kind of makes room for your butt. And then the second piece of it is that it, it enables the ratio between your waist and your thigh to be more flattering. So the typical men's pant, if, it, if it's straight, if it fits you in the waist, it's going to have too much fabric in the thigh. Mm-hmm. And if it's tailored fitted through the thigh, it's going to be too tight at the waist. And so a curved waistband has this slight curvature at the top that makes a dramatic difference as you go down the leg of the pant. 
And the degree to which your pants don't have superfluous fabric in the thigh is actually a big part of how you feel that fit. Mm. That and that also not only feels good but looks good. So he he was experimenting with these curved waistbands uh, from his dorm room at Stanford Business School. Was he manufacturing them uh, locally, or where was he experimenting with these? Yeah. So what happened was he was taking pants that had a straight waistband, taking them to a tailor to get them altered, and observing that they were making this adjustment in the waistband. And at some point, he said why would I have the tailor do that? I'll just figure that out myself. And so he had a girlfriend who had bought him a sewing machine. He started actually making the alteration himself. Mm. And then he took a number of these pants that he had had altered to a pattern maker in San Francisco and had her make a pattern for the pant with that contoured base waistband to begin with rather than as a post-purchase alteration. And then he found a little manufacturer in San Francisco, not far from where the Giants play baseball on Townsend Street, one of the last cut-and-sew shops, I imagine, in all of the Bay Area, and started making pants. How did you both know that you were onto something with these pants? I don't know how serious you were at first about making a go at this, but how did you know that you were onto something? You know, it's funny. One of our Stanford professors, Andy Rackleff, who's one of the early founders of Benchmark Capital and now the chairman of Wealthfront, he likes to joke that some of the great businesses that he knows started as hobbies. And I sort of ignored it, and then I watched it happen right under my nose. And so as Brian started making pants in San Francisco, our classmates started buying them, and he would fill these Trader Joe's uh, grocery bags with pants and would walk around the Stanford GSB with Trader Joe's bags of pants and would be selling pants to our classmates. For how much was he? So they were about $100 a pair. Mm -hmm. And so at some point, there was a Saturday where he invited a, a whole truckload of guys to come through our house, which was in um, Atherton. I like to say we were the poorest people in Atherton, California. I think it's the wealthiest zip code in the country. And here we were, you know, $100,000 plus in Stanford debt living in this house. Well, nevertheless, people are coming through and buying pants, you know, for cash and droves. And I think there was a Saturday where we, we sold $16,000 worth of pants. And so you've got $16,000 in your, in your room in cash and checks. And I think you know you might you might be able to get a thousand or two thousand dollars from your friends just for, with them being nice, but when you've got that amount of money and you're not selling narcotics, mm -hmm. you know it probably means that you're onto something. Now you had worked uh, for Bain Consulting uh, before business school, and coincidentally, you had some experience with uh, consumer apparel. Uh, one of your clients uh, or accounts was Lands End. Yeah, that was kind of just accidental. Well, it's this amazing serendipity. So I had no idea at the time that my time with Land's End would be incredible training for building Bonobos. Sears' acquisition of Land's End, it actually exposed a number of great attributes of a direct-to-consumer apparel retailer that are compromised when you move through a traditional brick-and-mortar experience. But it was incredible training for thinking about how a great internet-driven retailer could be built. And if you could use a catalog to build a great apparel brand, couldn't you use the internet to do so? No one no one had done that at the time, and we were one of the first that tried. And you are a somewhat of a blended model now, being e-commerce at your core, but you know, partnering with Nordstrom's, your, your product is in over 100 stores, and also now having these guide shops. It's interesting to kind of find this happy medium over time, I think. Um, I agree. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Andy Dunn, co-founder of the Men's Online Apparel 
apparel company Bonobos. Bonobos are also a group of promiscuous apes who live in the rainforest in the Congo in Africa. Andy started Bonobos with his Stanford Business School classmate Brian Spaley in 2007 with the goal of selling simply men's pants that fit. You and Brian, uh, and Brian incidentally was only with Bonobos for two years and then he started his own men's apparel company called Trunk Club. You and he set out to raise venture capital at first. Why was that so difficult in the early days, do you think? I think in a lot of ways, it was a tremendously contrarian idea in 2007 that you would take what was thought of as an internet-driven business model and apply it to being vertically integrated into an apparel label. Well, it, you you had Guild Group and you had other e-commerce companies doing it. So why was it um, anomalous? You did. And Guild Group um, comes from a long line of e-commerce companies, and by long I mean the last 20 years, that have been successful at selling other brands online. Mm-hmm. So when you're selling other brands you're, you're catching an existing consumer demand. This mm-hmm. was the business model originally behind Amazon. It was what Zappos proved could be brought into the soft line space, but largely selling other brands. Zappos being the shoe company. The mm-hmm. shoe company. Yeah. Uh, diapers.com here in New York. And then these flash, flash sale companies like Gilt. But all of those e-commerce companies are selling other brands. What mm-hmm. Bonobos really is the pioneer in doing is proving that you can use e-commerce to develop your own brand. And that turned out to be a bit of an antithetical idea in 2007. In the U.S., Bonobos was the first, which made it very hard to attract funding. You had a lot of uh, friends and family and professors and par- people part of the Stanford community yeah. on board, one of which was Joel Peterson, who's the chairman of JetBlue. Yeah. I just mentioned him, but who were who some others? Well, that was, that was it. You know, we walked in and we saw Joel. I saw him like at five in the morning. Joel gets up unbelievably early. I mean, he's an amazing, amazing guy. He's got it. something like seven kids and 21 grandkids. He's been on 36 boards in his career, built four or five companies, and he still finds time to teach. So I asked him for a meeting in July of 2007, and he said, how about, you know, 6.30 a.m.? And that was probably <laughs> the earliest I'd gotten up in two years at Stanford Business School. And I went and I met him, and I pitched him on this idea of selling these great fitting pants over the Internet. And he was largely quiet for a meeting, asked some really good questions, but then he shocked me at the end. He said, well, this reminds me of my first meeting with David Nealman from JetBlue, which is we're going to take a really innovative approach to a stagnant category and develop a much higher customer affinity brand than our competition. And then he started negotiating with me for how much he was going to invest and how much ownership he was going to have. And I think that was a Friday. The following Monday, I went in to meet this incredible technology venture capitalist, Andy Ratcliffe, who was an equally storied lecturer, professor at at Stanford. And Andy remarkably offered at the end of our conversation to invest. Well, then what happened was all these customers of ours who were our classmates heard that Joel and Andy, these luminary professors, were investing in the business, and they all then wanted to invest. We ended up raising the rest of the round mostly from customers, throw in a few mentors of ours, uh, both Brian and and I had worked at Bain before uh, Stanford, and then my brother-in-law and sister invested, and my parents asked to invest. I rather famously in our family told them I didn't want to waste their money, and now they're really upset with me that they didn't get to be a part of that seed round. So it ended up being a- about 100 angel investors over time? So it, it started at that time, maybe it was 25 or 30, mm-hmm. um, cobbling together $750,000. We took even a few $5,000 checks from some friends. That was all they had. But then what really made Bonobos challenging to finance was that the subsequent rounds all came from angel investors. Mm-hmm. And so that's where the number ended up. Probably when all was said and done in about 100 different angel investors across four rounds of capital over the course of three years, 
of work. But the institutional folks, you know, your venture capital firms and your strategic investors, they hadn't really bought into this idea yet until 2010 when the world started to change a little bit. What, what you alluded to with Gilt Group, you know, in 2010, some e-commerce companies started to get funded. Right. And the, the water started to change. And this window opened up that really, I think, was open for two or three years. Mm-hmm. A lot of problematic companies got funded, you know, Fab and Beachmint and Shoe Dazzle and companies like that. But it also enabled, I think, companies, hopefully including Bonobos, that will be mm-hmm. successful, like Birchbox and Rent the Runway and Warby Parker and you know a lot of these branded e-commerce players to also get access to venture capital. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Andy Dunn, co-founder of Bonobos. We'll hear more from Andy coming up. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Andy Dunn, co-founder of Bonobos, an e-commerce company that sells men's clothing. Bonobos started off with the goal of selling better-fitting pants for men in 2007 and expanded to include all types of men's apparel. Andy started Bonobos with his Stanford Business School classmate Brian Spaley in 2007. Logistically, uh, you raised your first round of capital, $750,000, from your, uh, from the Stanford Business School community, and, mm-hmm. and you moved to New York. Mm-hmm. Tell me about uh, the early days. It was a wild time in retrospect. I mean, I can remember coming down, I think it's 2nd Avenue, with a, with a trunk full of pants in my cab, getting to our apartment. We'd rent an apartment at 17th and Irving, and I came up to the third floor and within about two weeks was over to the Home Depot with another Stanford classmate and his uncle, and we were buying shelves. And I remember we had a negotiation at the door to be able to borrow the cart. And literally, we're going down Broadway with the cart, you know, full of shelves and, you know, got the borrowed free labor from the uncle to put the shelves up and literally put up, you know, 400 or 500 pairs of pants, which was our inventory on the walls of my bedroom. It's striking and, that what does go into New York, I mean, you had a bedroom filled of uh, shells of pants, hundreds of pairs of pants. And, you know, on the Upper West Side, a woman who started a dog food company had a, a huge refrigerator in her bedroom of dog food, right? Like, mm-hmm. who knows what goes on in the lives of New Yorkers? Who knows what goes on? I mean, nothing more exciting than the tiger that was up in Harlem. I'm still riveted by that story. But well, we, we hired a few employees. Um, you know, our, our first employee was a novelist, actually, which is sort of a funny first hire, but he was looking for some part-time work. And it was really remarkable. It, it kind of took off between word of mouth, a little bit of PR that came in. There was a site at that time called Urban Daddy that did a story called Monkey Business or Monkey Pants or something like that, which isn't technically accurate. Actually, bonobos are apes, not monkeys, and they would take great offense at the distinction. <laughs> uh, but we, we had about $10,000 in sales that first October. By May, I think we were at over 100000 a month. And then people started showing up to try on pants at, Your at, the, apartment. at my apartment. And that was when we got in some trouble with our landlord. Now, did Brian move to New York with you? So Brian spent that summer and fall working for what had been my previous employer before Stanford after Bain was a private equity fund in Chicago. Mm. And we had this funny day where I was trying to recruit him back. And so I called him and I said, we really need you. Like, this is going bananas. And I was running up to the garment district to pick up pants and working on the website. 
and it was it was really more than I felt like I could handle. And you know, we needed our our creative visionary to come back. And so we had this day where he he finally just got the courage to go resign, even though he'd only been on the job maybe six months. And I got a phone call, and it was back in the days of ground lines and caller ID. And the caller ID said, Winpoint Partners, which is the f- private equity fund. And I picked it up, and I said, how did it go? And it was my former boss, mm. not Brian, <laughs> saying, what's going on? Brian just resigned. You know, is this pants thing really working? Like, is this happening? Is he just moving back to New York because he wants to meet girls and work in the fashion industry? And I said, no, it's really going well. Like, mm-hmm. And so he, he came on back, and it was critical for that first two years to, to really build it together. Speaking of, of, of meeting girls, there's a story when you were on a date in the East Village, uh, and you this is the during the days, even though sales are going so great, uh, that you're very cash-constrained. Yeah. What's that story? Well, I think I had sort of the typical New York experience of you're you're a little bit of a fraud potentially where you've got a nice apartment and you've got a cool job but you have no money. Mm-hmm. And that was me. And so I had, you know, maybe 2 or 3,000 dollars in the bank. And there was this moment where, you know, well credit cards can solve everything, right? And I went to a restaurant and to my horror it was a cash only restaurant and we were mid mid meal and I knew I didn't have enough in my, you know, account at that time and so I've, I had to find a way to charge my credit card for cash without being mm-hmm. gone too long. Wait, so you, were, wait, did you go to an ATM machine? Yeah, I found an ATM that enabled me to like actually do a, like a, a transaction charging the credit card to get cash. It was sort of a special. Mm. Anything can happen in the East Village, apparently. And so you were cash constrained, but you still had confidence in the business given the responsiveness of people. Well, you know, it's funny. My mom is an Indian immigrant. And I th- there's a lot said about immigrant the immigrant experience with entrepreneurship. And so for me, it was more, I just couldn't fail. <laughs> there never was a sense that this brand isn't working. You and Brian both have a, an understanding for business and for you know fashion, uh, but you're not real tech people. And this is a very tech-heavy concept, uh, ironically. I mean, e-commerce, so much of it, the success of the company is how good is the website. There were a lot of hiccups uh, Mm -hmm. regarding the website. Can you talk about some of those? Totally. You know, it's been a long-running challenge of the company to figure out how do we get the right technology leader in place. And in the early days, if I can call it that, you know, 2007 to 2011, the tech scene in New York was rather nascent. And so we were doing this search where we were looking for a CTO, and I'd maybe met like 40 or 50 people in New York, but hadn't found the right person. So at some point, I called up our recruiter, and I said, hey, can we just explore candidates on the West Coast? And she said, sure. So I flew out to the West Coast for a day, and I met all these incredible people, Mm -hmm. including someone from Netflix who talked exactly the right way about personalization and how that had transformed the media space and how personalization might transform the apparel space. And he was really excited to become our CTO with one caveat, which is he didn't want to move to New York City. Mm. So I was somewhat seduced by this idea of finally getting a really talented person and made what I would describe as one of the key errors that I've made in the last eight years, which is we opened an office on the West Coast Mm -hmm. to build our technology function on the West Coast. The travel, the cost, and most importantly, the tribalism between the two groups and the challenges that result when you have human beings who don't have to have face-to-face contact, ended up making um, making this all add up to something that wasn't really working out. And thank goodness New York caught up. And well, thank goodness. You know, we were able to come back to New York, yeah. move a couple of key players over, 
the people who wanted to come. And now we've rebuilt the team 100% in New York. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Andy Dunn, co-founder of the men's online apparel company Bonobos. Bonobos are also a group of promiscuous apes who live in the rainforest in the Congo in Africa. When you came up with the name Bonobos, I assume it was like tongue-in-cheek a little bit, right? Oh, here's this promiscuous uh, ape, and isn't that funny? And Yeah, it was the make love, not war ape. It mm-hmm. seemed kind of fun. It but they're seemed, not monogamous, are they? They're polyamorous. Right. And polyamory, we actually think, might even be the natural state for human beings, which is why we struggle so much with marriage. So the bonobo started as a nod to the fraternity-like origins of the brand. But what it's become for me is a little bit more of a guidepost for the way that men might approach modernity. Focusing on the the matriarchal element of the bonobo's nature, to me, is a little bit more interesting in this era where we where we have, I think, an era of human history from 1900 to 2400 that I think one day will be called the rise of women. And you think women weren't able to vote in the U.S. 100 years ago, very limited exposure to post-secondary education even 50 years ago. And now we've got the last five years more female undergraduates than male undergraduates in the U.S. And now we've got this next challenge to tackle, which is the workplace. Um, So combine that with gay behavior from bonobos, rendering obsolete any arguments that homosexuality might be unnatural. And observing that I got to New York in 2007, and there were only seven states where gay marriage was legal, and now thankfully it's all 50. I do think there's something happening in terms of what it means to be a modern man, a modern heterosexual man. But I get excited now internally as we talk about the brand to talk about you know the evolution of mankind starting with pants. You have migrated both in terms of um, what you offer, uh, not just pants anymore, but a whole collection to men and now women. But also you are not just an online you know, e-commerce company like Zappos, the shoe company, but you're more like a Warby Parker, which is like a blended model. Uh, you have these stores so that people can actually try before buying. Um, can you talk about that evolution? So it was, again, one of those moments where it was a contrarian idea at the time that retrospectively makes us us look smarter than we are. But we were struggling with our first product extension. We were trying to to figure out if we could now make a better-fitting shirt. And having made a better-fitting pant, we saw a comparable problem in shirts, men's shirts, which is this syndrome that we call billowing muffin top, where you have too much fabric kind of billowing up at the waist. And it, it comes from the fact... Not you guys like all these little phrases, don't you? Well... The you, billowing muffin top and the khaki diaper bud, and you, you think long and hard about these. It's a way to kind of frame the visual. And, I get and it. So we, we actually developed a pretty great fitting <laughs> shirt. The only problem was that they didn't sell at all. You know, no one cared. We built so many hooks into Bonobos as a pants brand through PR, through word of mouth, through search engine optimization. All of the hooks into the brand were around pants. And so there was a rather reasonable concern that Bonobo should never sell shirts. So I, we had a board meeting where I said, I think we need to develop an in-person capability to educate our customer on these shirts. And there was a lot of pushback, as you might imagine. We ran an experiment to see if we could build a direct sales force. We put two fitting rooms in our lobby. And at that time, you know, probably we had a, you know, a $20 million business. We started doing a million revenue run rate out of our lobby within about 60 days. 
Just by having people sample the clothes. Just by having people try on the clothes, walk out with a with a place e-commerce order. And, what, and that's when it dawned on us, okay, number one, people still want to touch and feel clothing. That's obvious. But number two, we can actually potentially reconceive of a retail store without physical inventory. Were there other examples of uh, you know retail stores that didn't carry inventory that you looked to? No. This was the first example of any digitally native brand building an offline concept in Be- 2011. Where do you keep your inventory? So this is the revelation of the guide shop is that we, we keep our inventory at our distribution center in Massachusetts. And what that enables us to do in the guide shops is offer the full range of fit and size um, and then color and print and have all of that basically be in stock, quote unquote, because it's in stock at the DC. And then consumers can get it within you know, a day or two and you have this thing that you turn on its head, which is this conventional wisdom that people want to walk out with the product, that human beings are somehow lemmings that need to immediately receive the clothing that they bought. And I think that's true in the case of food. In the case of clothing, it's not necessarily obvious that it's a great experience to walk out and carry it home yourself mm. when we have an increasingly urban consumer who is off to dinner, back to work, to the gym, on to other things and actually can, can come to view it as more convenient to receive it as a follow-up. I want to go back to your co-founder, Brian, uh, Brian Spaley. Um, now, you were good friends uh, during business school, and uh, you called him and pulled him away from his job uh, to, to join you in New York. How come he only stayed for, for two years? So it's interesting because originally he was the one that brought me in, and then I recruited him back. And then we got to a place where our observation was that the company really needed one leader. And I marvel at some of the companies that I'm aware of out there that are kind of figuring out how to do it with two leaders. I think it can be done. It can be with a co-CEO arrangement, which I think is unusual, but increasingly it seems to be working for folks. It can also be where one person kind of takes a backseat role. But that and wasn't this. <laughs> that wasn't us. You know, we, we didn't, neither of us were skilled at backseat roles. And so we... We go back to Stanford Business School and talk a little bit about this experience, and we wonder why more people aren't more open about the challenges that come in professional partnerships. Are you friends again, would you say? I'd say we're friendly again. You know, we can spend time together, we correspond, we invest together. I I would say the relationship that preceded it It's not the same as it was then. You still pay deference where it's due. I mean, he was the one who who originated the idea and going to these tailors in San Francisco. And, you know, I'm sure there's a mutual respect despite the separation that occurred. Tremendous Um, respect. There's actually not a week that goes by where it doesn't occur to me that I wouldn't have earned the right to be an entrepreneur if he hadn't actually developed our hero product. Uh, Your parents are immigrants. Your father is... Irish and Swedish? He's Irish and Swedish, multi-generation. So he was born in Chicago, grew up in the Midwest. My mom is the one who was born in a refugee camp in India at the time of partition and who grew up in New Delhi. Now, how did they meet? They were introduced by my dad's sister. My mom got shipped overseas at the age of 20 or 21, right after graduating from college, to make money to send home. What did she do? She became an x-ray tech at a hospital in Canada. And then and ultimately moved from Canada to Chicago, where she was working as an x-ray tech at a hospital called Loretto Hospital on the near west side of Chicago. And at that hospital was an American red-haired nurse named Jane. Jane, Your aunt. Jane Dunn, my aunt, who brought my mom home for dinner 
And my dad at the time was a PhD student at Northwestern studying education Mm -hmm. and had this beautiful Indian woman who kind of just showed up (laughs) and ended up asking her out. And I think a year later, my my mom claims begrudgingly uh, they got married. You talk about the the love story between uh, your European father and your Indian mother. There's also a love story that you unearthed that your father uncovered um, between uh, his mother and father or your grandparents during World War II. Can you tell us more about that? This moves back a generation. So mm-hmm. on my dad's side, there was a trunk that was left in the basement of our house for many years. And his, his grandmother My grandmother, his mother, had told him not to open it until after she was gone. And my dad opened up his trunk, and it it contained a 1,000 letters that they had exchanged on the European front during World War II. She was a nurse, like her her daughter would go on to be at Loretta Hospital, but a nurse who arrived at Normandy at day eight and who followed the front lines all the way to the liberation of the concentration camps, dealing with um, patients right off of the front lines, so a horrendously injured men coming off the front lines and and, uh, had a post-traumatic stress disorder that proceeded from that, as you might imagine. Meanwhile, my grandfather was an aviation hero of sorts. He earned the Distinguished Flying Cross as a navigator on a B-17. At one point, his plane was the only plane that survived a bombing by the Germans in Poltava, Russia, and they asked him to fly the plane back with a crew by itself, which, as you might imagine, is a bit of a sitting duck. So they elected not to fly over continental Europe. They flew and circumnavigated the northern part of Africa. And so you have my grandfather writing these letters from Casablanca and Tripoli, Mm -hmm. Alexandria, places exotic, you know, even to me at this point. And their love letters to this nurse who we met while he was injured. So they exchanged about a thousand of those letters, which my dad discovered only after, you know, they were both gone. So mm-hmm. he says he feels a little bit like Marty McFly from Back to the Future, a voyeur to his parents' romance. And he's now written a four or five hundred page book mm-hmm. about it. Here you are in New York living in the West Village and you run this clothing company and you're reading all these love letters and having this historical perspective of World War II. How does it situate you somehow? Well, it's it's struck me as a bit funny because we've moved into this modern romance dating era, which I think Aziz Ansari has really appropriately captured with his book. And, you know, you have these like text messages and, you know, the degradation in human communication from my grandfather and grandmother's love letters, these eloquently worded, you know, heartfully rendered conversation that they're having and not able to see each other for weeks. And now it's, you know, midnight and you're at a bar and it's like, hey, hey, question mark, right? And it's like, well, how, how far how, how far we've ascended technologically and how far potentially we've fallen, you know, from a romance standpoint. So I guess um, like many people living in New York uh, who are on the single side, it's been a journey for me. And I feel fortunate that, that perhaps I have something unfolding that's a little bit more romantic, which is I met a woman in the lobby of the Ace Hotel. And uh, (laughs) for some reason was compelled to walk over to her and compliment her on her shoes. She was wearing these um, like Tinkerbell looking ballet flats. They actually were really cool shoes. People joke with me now that I probably didn't even look at her shoes. Um, But we started a conversation and she was very warm, which is, I think, um, it's not necessarily unusual, but in that situation, you have a lot of anxiety. And she just was very warm and had such a welcoming kind of spirit. We had a good conversation. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. My guest is Andy Dunn, co-founder of Bonobos. Coming up, we'll meet Emily Weiss, founder of Glossier. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. From Scratch.